0: of stories with chest life. The U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, in which I talk to people who are advancing our mission statement. Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi. And on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Kariannis, in which he examines the game eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org or subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Our guest today is Bruce Pandolfini, who wrote our report in the August Chess Life on the National Elementary Championship as part of our full coverage on the Spring Nationals. Bruce has been a Chess Life columnist for over 40 years, having penned the ABCs of Chess and Solitaire Chess. He has been profiled in such publications as The New Yorker and has been a chess consultant on films such as Searching for Bobby Fischer and currently for the Netflix in-production miniseries The Queen's Gambit. But he is best known as a chess teacher who first rose to fame as a commentator during the Fischer-Spassky match. Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, Bruce Pandolfini.
1: Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here, wherever I am right now.
0: <laughs> so it's actually one of the things that I've I've enjoyed getting to know about you. You have a very philosophical bent about life and chess teaching as well, right?
1: Well, I try to. Uh- I guess you could say that, yes. I, I would say that,
0: yeah. So, you wrote about the National Elementary Championship that that was held in Nashville, Tennessee at the Gaylord this year. What was the reason you specifically were in attendance?
1: Well, I go every year with uh, various students. Uh, I love doing it. Uh, I like the action. It's um, something I always look forward to.
0: How long have you been attending these events?
1: Uh, since the mid-80s. And... I wasn't there for the first one, which I think was in 1976 and one by Joel Benjamin. I think it was 76. But I've been to a lot of them, uh, both the elementary, high school, junior high, super nationals. I I thoroughly love going.
0: Now, that kind of puts you in a unique position to, to answer this. You know, obviously, one of the main changes in these events is just the sheer numbers that attend now. But kind of other than that... What has been the change that you've seen over the years in these events? Is it the quality of play, the, the high level of competition, some, something else?
1: No, no. It's Clearly, the players have gotten better, and there are more of them. So the competition is quite fierce, uh, and it's been that way now for years. The question is why that's happened. I guess many players are excited. There are school programs uh, that involve them, the software available now is incredible and the opportunity to play on the internet every day. And so you have some
0: really strong
1: players involved. Uh, So unquestionably it's gotten much
0: more competitive. In fact, you you specifically wrote in this issue, uh, the competitions were fierce, perhaps the most hard fought I had seen in all my years of attending these events.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to stay with those words. I agree with them.
0: <laughs> One of the interesting aspects of our National Scholastic Championships is that in addition to the championship sections, we have these under sections and even unrated sections. what What are your thoughts on having these types of sections in a national championship?
1: Well, other than taxing the organizers to parcel out everything properly, uh, I think it involves many more people. Um, and that aspect of it is nice. Does it diminish the top players? Uh, I don't think so. I think it adds something. It gets, gives all of us a chance to be involved, all these various young people. I like it. I like them.
0: So, if a, if a new chess parent came to you and said, you know, my kids never played a rated event, we're thinking of going to the Gaylord where there's 2,500 kids playing, would you dissuade them from that? Would you say, hey, at least for practice, you know, get, get a couple of tournaments under his belt or her belt?
1: Try a scholastic tournament at home first. <laughs> See how it goes over. Uh, I don't think you want to throw anyone into the lion's den to start with. Although that might work, too. You don't want to dissuade a youngster from playing, though. And uh, nothing dissuades more than defeat. Uh,
0: How many students did you have participating in Nashville?
1: That's a good question. Probably about a dozen.
0: Are they all top-level players or some of them beginner-level? They're all uh, fairly
1: involved competitive players. Occasionally you'll have a newcomer, but I wouldn't encourage them necessarily to go off, invest all that money, uh, travel across the country to play in such an event, unless they're just really into the, the idea of participating. Um, so most of them are decent players.
0: So so that now leads into my question, and which is, how do you go about preparing them for, for nationals? Are they looking at specific opponents? Or are, are they just brushing up on openings or something else?
1: Mainly, you don't have much time. First of all, the pairings go up often minutes before the next round. And so you don't have a lot of time. If you have a bunch of people to uh, get around to, you, you simply meet with them, encourage them, remind them what they might play in certain situations. But really, you just want to inspire them to do their best. I always say to my youngsters, fight like five minutes." I try to instill that in them. That's my, my little motto.
0: And things like that. Talk a little bit about that, because uh, what, what was it about Botvinnik that, that made him a fighter?
1: Well, he would go right into the teeth of a variation and try it, he thought.
0: Even if he didn't think
1: it would be necessarily right for him, if he thought the other player didn't enjoy being there, that's where he'd head.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: He understood the value of making the other player feel uncomfortable. Um, if he's a strategic player, get him embroiled in tactics. If he's a tactical player, play a plotting positional game. See how he likes that. Of course, Botvinnik could do it at an incredibly high level. Uh, we're not talking about something like that here.
0: The only thing I could see as an argument against that kind of strategy is it seems kind of reactive rather than dictative. Uh, what do you? Th- what are your thoughts on that? That's, <laughs> I mean, that's a
1: good point you made. Um, I think chess is somewhat reactive. You have to be able to be prepared to act upon what comes at you. But of course, you're also playing for the initiative. You're trying to get control of the game, control of the play. Whoever gets control of the play has a much better chance of getting the position he or she wants and, of course, of winning. So, uh, I mean, you have to play both, both aspects. You, whatever you're presented with in a chess game, you have to be prepared to uh, play on from there. If you have a lost position, you have to find the most creative way of continuing the way that besets your opponent with the most problems. Otherwise, you're not going to get back in that game if you don't approach it that way, trying to present your opponent with mm-hmm. problems and barriers and obstacles to overcome.
0: Let, let's take kind of a right turn here. and uh, You've got a extensive chess journalism re- resume, uh, not just your decades of writing for Chess Life, but you've written many books. Uh, do you happen to know off the top of your head how many books you've written? You no, know, people always ask
1: me, and I kind of take a guess at it. Sometimes I come close. I think it's in the
0: 30s. Um, When you were writing your first book, did you ever think there would come a time that you had written so many books you couldn't keep track of them?
1: No, not at all. (laughs) It was never my goal to be a chess writer. It just sort of happened.
0: How did you come to chess life? Who was the first editor you worked with and and hired you?
1: Well, I'd have to uh, attribute that to Bert Hochberg. Uh, He invited myself. I I guess I had done a couple of small little pieces on different things for chess life. Bert had asked me, and then one day he proposed a column. It was his idea, Uh, the ABCs of chess. I was to write on the end game. Uh, On the opening was Larry D. Evans, and on the middle game was Julio Kaplan, and we were all professional chess teachers. So the idea was to see how professional chess teachers of, a profession that had really developed it that the Fisher-Spotsky match. Of course, there were chess teachers beforehand, but I'm not sure they were really making a living from the game and working at it so. So anyhow, Bert thought it would be a good idea to have a column like that and have three different voices. And that's how it got started in late or early 77, I think, 1977. My, my memory may not serve me properly, but yeah, I think it was around then.
0: So with three writers, was it that uh, you only did four columns a year each? That was, that was the idea, but Julio soon pulled out. And so it became, uh, for other
1: reasons, he had things to do. Didn't have the time for that. By the way, Julio was a fantastic chess teacher. Uh, one of the best I'd ever seen. In fact, that group of chess teachers in the early 70s who I w- worked with and was around, I mean, they were incredible. Almost all of them have left the game Uh, the only one that stayed with it from my group was is larry D. evans
0: for people who aren't familiar we should clarify this is international master larry b evans not the grandmaster larry evans
1: right they have the same name i think grandmaster evans middle initial was m maybe for melvin and larry's is d for david
0: Mm -hmm. um so what made them such strong chess teachers what what is the quality that defines a good teacher
1: I think it starts with enjoying the process, really liking the idea of teaching and helping other people, being interested in other people. I think those teachers, and of course, loving chess. If you don't love chess, if you don't manifest that, it's hard to inspire your students. Um, But if you show your love for the game, uh, which may include showing positions that you are thrilled by, that that will inspire your students, that will get them interested. So I think
0: they all had that. And I, I think of you as a very well-rounded individual. You, um, you, you often talk about uh, arts and philosophy. When you're teaching, do you bring that into it? Uh, do you encourage your chess students to not focus exclusively on chess and try to be more well-rounded?
1: Oh, absolutely. I love ideas. I, I encourage reading wherever I can attach a chess concept to an outside idea. And if I think I can do it relevantly and entertainingly, I will do so. Because I, w- I want to encourage students to learn, to uh, become the fullest they
0: can be. And are you? Uh, do, you current, do you exclusively teach kids or do you have adult uh, students as well?
1: I have both, but mainly kids. It's funny because in the beginning, most of chess teaching was adult education right after the fischer spassky match. Were, these were adults who got it, it's, You know, engaged in the, twi- the Fisher spectacle and the great games and the analysis on television. With Shelby Lyman and others. Shelby was brilliant, by the way. Uh, he, I think he was really wonderful. And it was a great show because none of us were television people per se. And so our mistakes were the kind of mistakes that ordinary people would make. And I think a lot of us, or a lot of the viewers had identified with that. But of course you also had Bobby Fisher and everything that about him. Um, it was like, it was like the, the moon landing kind of thing, you know.
0: It was really a, totally engaging. And uh, f- from those t- first TV appearances, do you remember the first time you were recognized in the street?
1: Yeah, it happened very quickly because I had incredibly long hair down to my shoulder, which wasn't well kept. <laughs> and um, I went into a bar, and apparently many people, knowing nothing about chess, Watching in bars. And I was questioned and pestered. Well, I enjoyed it at the time, actually. Uh, But I I soon noticed that I would go places and people would recognize me because of my long hair.
0: (laughs) Um, I should have kept that
1: hair, you know. I don't know why. I
0: I would say you look very distinguished now with your hair the way it is. I'd like to think that. Thank you. when you take on new students, do you ever take on uh, beginner-level students at this point, or do they already have to have a record of achievement? No, I don't mind taking on beginner-level
1: students necessarily, although I don't seek them out. Usually, I will advise them to go elsewhere. I'll try to help them. I'll give anybody an introductory session to evaluate them and make suggestions. Uh, that's for several reasons. For One, I, I want, I'm on the lookout for talented youngsters all the time. Um, but also, um, I like helping people and, and getting them in, uh, or bringing them to the game. Chess is a wonderful game. I'd like everyone to know about chess. The more people will know about chess and will love chess, the better for all of us real chess players.
0: Well, given uh, that statement, I'm going to go ahead and ask you a question that I've been asking all our guests this this year, because this is the 80th anniversary of U.S. chess um, coming up at the end of the year. What has U.S. chess meant to you personally?
1: Are we on the air now?
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, we are on the air. <laughs> well,
1: I guess it means many things. I certainly, I like U.S. chess. I like Chess activities. Um, I like the way things have been going for, since my involvement in the game. Well, it certainly has changed through the years. It's grown. It's become more effective. Um, I think it's run very wonderfully organizationally. Um, I regret that there are often a lot of changes that come about because you have elections and you have different people in place. Most of them pretty good, by the way. I'm not complaining, but you do have changes that, and interest vary. Overall, though, I'd give them, i give the USCF uh, a decent grade. Very
0: <laughs> uh, well. How, instead of a grade, how about giving us a rating? Oh, a rating. Oh. <laughs> well, I've always thought the
1: first class, of really strong player, is an eighteen hundred player. i also say the USCF is an eighteen hundred player, and by that I mean if you're A strong enough player, you can take a winning advantage and win with it. You have the ability to bring home winning advantages. That makes you a strong player.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um, So going back to teaching, uh, talk a little bit about what your teaching arc, if you even have a teaching arc, uh, but from when you first take on a student to when you say, I can teach you no more. Are you starting with endings or openings or tactics or some other other plan?
1: Uh, another good question and I I can't say that I follow any one approach I will do this I will sit with a student and it will usually begin this way I'll have him or her play a few moves against me and I'll begin asking questions I want to see how they respond to my questions Um, and I may ask hundreds of questions in an hour students are often exhausted by the end of that hour the approximate hour uh, they, they've never been asked so many pointed questions in their, their lives, really. And uh, so it begins that way. And based on how they respond to my questions, I begin formulating a, a general approach that I will follow for a while. And then, of course, I will modify it as more information comes in, as I learn more about the students. Uh, but it begins there with a and a Q&A sitting over the board. As far as what material I look at, now... I like to show positions of all types that are uh, interesting, that I, I find interesting. And I, by me demonstrating that interest and showing why I think this position is beautiful or why this idea is, is uh, wonderful, I hope I can impart some of that to those students. I think I do when I succeed. When I don't succeed, well, that's another matter. But it begins with that Q&A session when I try to learn a lot about the student. I never present the same things over and over because that would not take into account differences in the student. You would say everyone's alike, and I prefer not to do that.
0: Is it possible to define what talent is in chess and who has it and who doesn't? I'm sure
1: it's possible. I'm not sure I'm capable of doing it. I will try, though.
0: If a student
1: is very interested, really, and you can see it, really wants to play, that's a talent. And that tells me that student has something and can go somewhere with it. If a student refuses to give up, you want that. You don't want obstinacy, but you want someone who's going to fight. Uh, Good players often get inferior positions, especially in the scholastic events, and even losing positions. But they win a lot of those games because they find ways of coming back and they don't give in. That doesn't mean necessarily playing it out to the last you know hopelessly down although at first you don't encourage students to resign because they have to see how those positions are won their opponents have to beat them so they can learn something and afterwards of course those games would be analyzed by their teachers by me for example or or others and you ask questions why did you do this did you consider that Now, you may ask a question like, did you consider that even though it's not the right move? But it'd be a natural move for a student to think about. Now, maybe there's something wrong with it tactically. So you want to ask a lot of questions that suggest natural ways of thinking so that over time, the process becomes intuitive. And so certain things, certain things become routines, but not all of it, because you have to always be on your toes, alert, creative, alive.
0: Uh, about coming from behind or from winning from losing positions or worse positions, is it a bit of a I must win type of personality uh, that's, that's common in other sports or with chess players does it tend to be more of uh, I've got to solve this puzzle?
1: Uh, well, that's a tough question. I think you, you have to love solving puzzles and, and you like to be intrigued by problems uh, it takes a certain personality not to give up at all. Most of us will give up after a certain point when we've gotten nowhere. Not all chess players, though. Some of the, the better ones will stay with the problem if they can until they solve it. So, But I don't think all chess players are alike either. Let's be clear here. They're radically different styles. You can be a, a tactical wizard. You can be a safer, more careful positional player. You can like being attacked hope, and look for counterattack, op- hoping to uh, lure your opponent to overextending him or herself. So there's a whole range of styles that work for chess. I don't think there's any one thing that applies here. I think they did a study somewhere. and They said, what do chess players like? And it, it turns out like 50% of them like sports. So they like competition.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... And going back to the my talent question I uh, the our discussion of Bodvinnik earlier makes me think about this I I think he was the one that said uh, show me how a player handles his knight and I can tell if he has talent or not does does this ring a bell at all
1: Yeah it rings a bell I don't recall the exact quote but I think it does ring a bell and in fact I know it does and um yeah uh the knight is you know, a tricky piece for newcomers, but we often give puzzles involving knight maneuvers you know, as a, a kind of test. A lot of us do this. Maneuvering a knight from one square to another in the fewest moves possible are there multiple paths. I think when you can do things like that, you're enhancing and developing a talent that has a lot of utility in chess. It's certainly not the only talent. So knight maneuvers are, uh, are very important. Knight is an interesting piece. You know, it's the only piece that makes a move the same length from move to move. It always changes the color of the square it's on. One puzzle I always do um, newcomers is how many knights can you place on a chessboard so that no knight can capture any other knight? And you'll be surprised at the answers you get.
0: You know, I think what we will do is uh, post the answer to this on our website, uschess.org, dot uh, org, when this podcast drops. So, so listeners, if you're curious about that, lo- look on our website for the answer.
1: Then I won't give the answer. How about that? <laughs> yeah, no, let's <laughs> let, let's save it.
0: Um, so uh, another thing that I, I mentioned in the introduction that you're currently a uh, chess consultant for the Netflix series, The, the Queen's Gambit. What, yes. How much can you share about this experience?
1: Well, it goes back to uh, Walter Tavis' 1983 book, The Queen's Gambit, which I had the pleasure of naming, by the way. Uh, the title comes from me. Um, I worked on that book for Random House, going over the chess in it. Uh, I don't have those notes anymore. I think Walt ignored a lot of them, But it was a really nice novel. It's about an eight-year-old American girl living in an orphanage who goes on to be an incredible chess player. Um, So I think it's very timely for our world. And this series will have six episodes. It's being shot mainly in Berlin, by the way. Um, The cast will be excellent. And some top chess players will be involved. And uh, we've created the positions. i did 90 chess positions so far. So there's a lot of real chess in it. Um,
0: are, are you able to name any of these top players, or is that hush-hush for right now? Well,
1: let's say they're among the best players in the world.
0: <laughs> oh, well, that's very compelling. Uh, do you know when this is scheduled to air on Netflix?
1: No, that I don't know. I don't
0: know. But the, but has, has filming even begun yet?
1: No, no. It won't begin until late August. Okay. The actors are being trained, and all the other aspects of production are being planned out.
0: So the primary actors who are that are playing chess players were they were the producers looking for chess players who could act, or actors who could learn chess?
1: Um, it's a funny thing, you know. You, you don't have to have uh, actors who can play chess necessarily, because the way camera angles are cut and stuff. They usually only have to play a move or two. But it's a funny thing because if you were watching a tennis player or a golfer and you saw a golfer holding the club in some ridiculous way or a tennis player hitting, serving the ball very badly, you'd know that he or she wasn't a tennis player. And the same thing is true for chess. If you see a, a player grabbing a piece and moving it awkwardly, you know that person's probably not a good chess player. So those things are important, how the pieces are moved, how you, you look at the board, and they have to be attended to. But then on the other hand, we want to make sure the chess is perfect.
0: And how did you come to the attention of the producers? Was, was it specifically because of your history with uh, the novel, or was it because of your prior experience as a chess consultant?
1: Both. both things. They came to me right away.
0: Well, now it's time for our Best Question Contest, which is uh, sponsored by U.S. Chess Sales, the official chess shop of the U.S. Chess Federation. U.S. Chess Sales is the largest chess retailer in the United States. From chess books, software to DVDs, from chess pieces to clocks to computers, U.S. Chess Sales is your complete one-stop chess shop. With over 5,000 items in stock, it offers same-day shipping and a low-price guarantee. Find it cheaper at any specialty chess retailer, and we'll gladly match them. Shop today at www.uscfsales.com. So, Bruce, I've got three questions for you. The third one is going to be the one that I'm awarding uh, the $50 gift certificate for best question. And listeners, if you want to enter the contest for next month, just send your question to podcast at uschess.org. Our first question comes from Jonathan Inglis. In your experience coaching children, is there a minimum rating range at which you might start to sense that a kid has exceptional talent?
1: Uh, not necessarily. I wouldn't base it on a rating. You can play decently but uh, have trouble with competition and suddenly blunder and all that, even though you play, uh, for the most part, at a much higher level. So I wouldn't, People sometimes have trouble with competition. Of course, I would try to help them get through that. So I wouldn't say there's a minimum rating to answer
0: that question. Okay. Okay. Our next question comes from Dr. Alexi Root, a former U.S. women's champion who is now a professor at University of Texas at Dallas and a real friend of our podcast. So thank you again, Alexi, for sending in a question. Her question is, on last month's podcast, Sam Shanklin said that the main reason he wrote his books was to improve his own chess. Why... Did Why do you write books?
1: Why did I write books?
0: Or why do you write books? Oh. Uh,
1: the first reason I wrote started writing books was that Simon & Schuster asked if I would pl- replace nine Reinfeld, Horowitz, and Chernev books, which are irreplaceable, b- by doing some new books. Of course, the, the books I did are not as good as those classics. But that's how I got started, and that's the reason I began writing books. I've always liked reading books, so I thought maybe I could write some. Although chess writing is very different from real writing. I mean it's presenting an idea, perhaps getting a bunch of variations and connecting them with words. you can do that elegantly and effectively. I, I wouldn't necessarily liken it to literature necessarily. I think Fred Reinfeld was a brilliant writer. I mean, in terms of language, I think Grandmaster Evans wrote very, very well. If you read it, it's, it's very clear writer. Um, Andy Soltis is, is wonderful, but for the most part, chess books are words and variations connected together. Hopefully the variations are wonderful. Um, so I, I'm not sure why I, I it's always it was a labor for me. I don't consider myself a good writer. I had to work very hard in my books, even though, you wouldn't judge that from reading them sometimes. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I don't know why. I mean, those are the, how I get, that's how I got started. Uh,
0: of, of the 30 or so books that you've written, uh, which one jumps to the front of your mind as your personal favorite?
1: Um, not because it's the best or whatever, but I, I think Bobby Fisher's outrageous chess moves um, was a lot of fun to do. Um, and even it even it got Fisher upset for a while. He was very upset with me because he, he said something to the effect, outrageous, isn't that insulting? Isn't that <laughs> meant as an insult? I said, of course, no. You know, that was, that I, I looked up, who would look up to Bobby for, as a player in those days? So I meant, of course, that he was innovative and exciting. I, I meant the word in that sense, breaking the rules. But he, he initially took it. Anyhow, I loved doing that book. That was a lot of fun.
0: So it's, it almost sounds like the kind of book where maybe the title came first.
1: Yeah, that was often true with a few of the books. I mean, <laughs> uh, maybe the best-known one in that sense is my uh, chess openings, Traps and Zaps. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've told you that story, but I've certainly told it a few times. I was in a bar one night. I was trying to think of a title, and I was with a, f- a few other chess players, and one of them talked about some... Trap that he played at the Marshall. And the other guy said, Oh, you really zapped him. And I began thinking, traps, <laughs> Zaps. Yes. Traps and zaps. And it, just like that. And that book has sold so many copies and it's <laughs> an absurd number. And I, I think the title helped a lot.
0: Well, it's it also just speaks to something very deep in most chess players who are looking for a quick advantage in the opening. Right. Yeah. Uh, Alexi had a follow-up question about, uh, do you have a book in process now?
1: Uh, I've been writing a book for years, which I, I, I don't really feel comfortable with. It's about how I became a chess teacher, um, what I try to do in, in chess, teaching chess. It's a highly personal book. I'm not sure where I'm going with it, uh, but that's my next book.
0: Well, as a, as a reader and a fan myself, that sounds like a very compelling book to me, so I, I do hope you proceed with it. Thank you. I, I hope I do, too. Okay, so our best question, and the winner of the $50 gift certificate, which is now in your email's inbox, is from Renee Bartlett of the Madison City Chess League in Alabama. She asks, How is teaching chess to scholastic players different today than when you started teaching chess?
1: A good question, a very good question. Um, Well, we have so much more to offer these days. I don't mean me, I mean all chess teachers. Uh, You have a lot of chess teachers who come from Eastern Europe, brought their systems. That has strengthened our approaches here. It used to be said there were more books written on chess than all other games combined. I suspect that was true, but it's probably even more true now. Uh, There are so many wonderful books being published on all aspects of the game by very strong players. There's a lot of self-publishing going on as well. But there's so much out there. Um, Then, of course, you have wonderful software that just didn't exist years ago, ways to organize material, ways to track material down, ways to evaluate material like Stockfish and, and other tools. That can just you can check ideas immediately instead of saying I think this is a good idea because of this, you know you put it in Stockfish and it kind of makes you puts egg on your face right away. It finds some absurd move which is much absurd looking move which is much better. Um, But this is a wonderful tool. You also have a lot of um, online uh, videos and other services that are wonderfully helpful. We didn't have any of that in the beginning. Um, and of course you have the ability to play a lot. So you can direct students to play in this event and that, and then check games easily afterwards. You can give them assignments. You just couldn't do any of that. It was so much, it was such a labor if you wanted to do a lot of work in the beginning. You know, if you had to work through basic chess endings, let's say, or something like that, you'd have to really work. Now you could Get through this material even by, you know, a genius like deveretsky much more easily. There are th- just ways of doing things better uh, that we didn't have access to then. So, plus you have other supports. You have other teachers you can talk to and get advice from. People work in groups. That's helpful. We didn't have any of that. There were a few isolated teachers, at least in my area in New York. I don't know how many teachers there were across the country. In, in New York, here, there was Jack Collins and Carl Forster. I mean, people who tried to earn a living from chess. There may have been people giving isolated lessons who were very strong players, but not on a regular basis. That's all changed, and you have so much more to draw upon now. You can, you can be like a real subject presenter. You can be like, a, you know, a mathematician or something.
0: Well, no, that's a that's a great answer, and and thank you for that question uh renee bartlett so bruce this has been a wonderful wide-ranging conversation and but before we come to the end i've, I've developed a special question that i think uh, uh is a fun question and it's it's geared towards your particular special talents of of being able to bring in a lot of different disparate areas of of knowledge and synthesize it into one answer so t- take this question in that spirit okay okay what do nazi war criminal adolf eichmann indian activist mahatma gandhi and early french director Georges millier all have in common
1: neither one played chess neither of them played chess <laughs>
0: um i i can't answer that question i don't i don't know if that's that's not the answer i have or look, was looking for um who are the three again <laughs> so Eichmann, yeah. Gandhi, and Melier. Hey. <laughs> well, I have no idea. Um. Okay. Well, hopefully, you'll enjoy the answer more than you enjoyed, did not enjoy the question.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the answer is they were all portrayed in a movie by Ben Kingsley, who, of course, also played you in 1993 oh. searching for Bobby Fischer. <laughs>
1: I am stumped. <laughs>
0: Very impressed. Uh, okay. <laughs> Well, Bruce, again, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fascinating conversation, and uh, listeners, uh, make sure to to read his article in the August Chess Life as well as his monthly column, Solitaire Chess. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. Be well. it's now time for the Skittles Room segment where we talk each month to someone who is doing something of interest or note within the U.S. Chess Federation. And our guest today is Tim Just, the editor of the seventh edition of the U.S. Chess Rulebook, which has just become available. So, Tim, welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life. Thank you, Dan. So, you are the editor of the seventh edition of the Rulebook, and we'll tell people in a little bit about how to get this brand new hot off the press edition, but I think what people are mostly interested in, especially tournament players, is what is the most dramatic change a tournament player should know from the 6th edition?
2: Well, there were some rules that were deleted. Uh, 14-H, which was the uh, insufficient losing chances rule, was deleted. There is an alternate rule that they can use, but it has to be announced. And there's a, a few extra things for blind players. There is a lot of material in Rule 5B through F about what to do and how to set your clock if you don't have a standard clock for the time control that you particularly are playing in. So if you have an, incre- an increment time control, but all you have is a uh, delay clock, it tells you how to set that clock.
0: You know, one rule that I've always been confused about is I thought that black could always select the side of the board that the clock goes on. But when I'm at national events, I see that the TDs often insist that the clock be on one side. Is could you explain that discrepancy?
2: Sure. The organizer trumps anything the player wants to do. They can insist that someone use their setting boards and they can say the clock will always be on a certain side. That kind of ensures that the tournament director can walk up and down the aisle and check and see who has a time problem on their clock, and then they can pay particular attention in that game. If the clocks are in different directions, it gets very hard to give service to the player if they
0: don't know if they're in time trouble. Well, unfortunately, I feel like that discriminates against us left-handers. <laughs> <laughs> Being a left-hander myself, I agree. <laughs> um, so we have one new um aspect of the rule book with the seventh edition um, in the pe- we've we had in the sixth edition we had an ebook available as well and we do have that again available but this time we now have a free downloadable version uh, speak a little bit about that please in
2: the past the rule book was published by uh, Random House and Random House had an exclusive contract of first writer refusal and they always printed the rule book and they did not want any version of this free online. They gave up that right at some point, thanks to Frank Guadalupe. And so US Chess decided to make the rules for chapter one and two, which are the main playing rules and the main tournament rules, plus chapter 11, the blitz rules available for free online. They're in PDF format. Somebody can just, uh, Go to the site, scroll down to where that large black area is with a lot of links, and you'll see something that immediately jumps out at them that says uh, 7th edition downloadable. You can read it online or download it and put it on your, your smartphone.
0: Yeah, so at uh the main menu that runs horizontally across the page, there is a play button, and when you click on play, you'll see under there official rules, and when you click there, that'll get you there. Ah, so there's two ways to get there. That's wonderful. What would be a reason for someone to purchase the print or ebook version rather than just having the free download version? Well, the
2: print version is more than just a rule book, it's almost a yearbook. It uh, contains all sorts of rules for postal chess, it contains rules for uh, filing complaints, it contains rules for tournament directors and how to become one. It has ethics chapters, it tells the players their rights and responsibilities in other chapters, etc. There's also uh, Robin Tables in this book that are not available on the
0: US Chess site. And now would be a good time for us to let people know how to get the book. We already said about the downloadable version. The exclusive seller of the print version is US Chess Federation Sales. So go to their site at uscfsales.com and do a search for the book and you'll find it there. For the ebook, it is available on Amazon in uh, the Kindle format. So just search for the book there. And as we speak, it's it's still uh, the number one release in the chess category and pretty high up in the uh, board game category. So th- th- that's kind of cool. Well, it's due to the wonderful efforts of yours, truly. <laughs> <Yeah>, ab- absolutely. <laughs> but you too, Dan. You too. <laughs> Thank you. And what? Uh, I I imagine a lot of people are even amazed that there needs to be a whole big rule book because once you know that uh, you know the knight moves a certain way and how could a king get out of check? Why why is there 300 pages of of rules? Um, Talk a little bit about the process of rules implementation in the U.S. Chess Federation? Well, besides how the
2: piece is moved, there's tournament play rules about touching the piece, about how to handle the clock and the times, how to make claims that you've won a game based on time, for instance. There's rules about taking notation and how it impacts your making a claim that some particular rule wasn't followed. And these rules are discussed and worked on the year at the US delegates convention which is held in conjunction with the US open every state is allowed to send a certain amount of delegates and motions are made people discuss this and vote on it there's workshops before the convention to help everybody understand
0: exactly what a rule change is being proposed and how it impacts the entire rule book well tim thank you so much for filling us in on this and great great work on this new edition and in in honor of your longtime service at the delegates meetings and participation i say it's time for us to call the question on this podcast segment <laughs> thank you man thank you okay the question is called right. thank you tim bye-bye bye Thank you for listening to the August edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month when we will be talking to Grandmaster Joel Benjamin about his stories on the World Senior and the U.S. Senior Invitational. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button where you can find a membership option that is right for you, or click on the Donate button where you can help US Chess grow the game. Thank you and good chess.